Well, today we come to a very important chapter in the Exodus narrative. Indeed, Exodus chapter 24 is a very important chapter in salvation history. And in fact, in the overall storyline of the Bible, it is true because it is so formative. This uh, issue of importance is true because this chapter is so formative of our understanding of the covenant between God and sinners and of salvation and of true worship of God. And I'm confident that these issues will become more obvious as we are progressively exposed to this chapter in the next 25 minutes. This is our text passage this morning, and so I'm going to invite you to turn with me now to Exodus chapter 24. Won't you follow with me then as I read the chapter to you? This is the word of God. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So reads the word of God. Now when people become aware of God in the big picture of their lives, 
And when they realize their need to come before this God who made them and who has kept them and to whom they will have to give an account one day, then they actually desire to come to God. But when they feel this desire to come to God, they begin to wonder to themselves, but how? How exactly can I come before the God of the book of Exodus, the God of the Bible, in a way that is true and authentic and satisfactory? Well, that's a good question. That's a good thing to wonder about. And this text before us reveals a number of vital component parts of the answer to that question. In fact, I'm hoping that you will identify with me this morning four aspects of the gospel and our response to it. The first is the need for obedience. And uh, I trust that you'll take note of the fact that there is a, a threefold repetition here regarding the people and their desire to be obedient. Not only do we see it in verse 3 and verse 7 of this 24th chapter, but right back in chapter 19 at verse 8, when they first got to the mountain before they even received the law from God, they said that they would be obedient. And when we speak of obedience, we are by implication also speaking of the need for confession and repentance of sin because we have been disobedient. We want to identify the standard and own up that we have not been able to meet that standard. When we think of obedience, we must think of the gospel command it's often presented as a gospel invitation, but in reality it is a gospel command. God calls all people everywhere now to repent and believe the gospel. And so when we wonder how can we worship God in ways that are true, authentic, and satisfactory, this first issue of gospel significance is there, and that is the need for obedience. But then secondly, notice also the need for sacrifice, the shedding of blood. There needs to be the payment of a price. And the gospel good news is that this price was paid as Jesus Christ shed his own blood on behalf of all those who have faith in him. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself in terms of this text, but you see what is there before us. There's very clearly reference to sacrifice and blood and the significance of this blood in the worship activities of these people. But then thirdly, notice also the need for revelation or authority, because there is the reading of the book of the covenant. There, there's two references to the reading of the words and the rules the law, and the commandment. The way of salvation is clearly laid out in Scripture. Scripture is our authority. We aren't interested in man's invention. We're not trying to get to God by our own way. We are simply responding to what God has clearly said to us in His Word. And so, in addition to obedience and sacrifice, there is this need for authority that comes from the revelation that God gives 
to us. And then fourthly, there is this fourth component of the need of, or the need for, a mediator. And clearly Moses is here the mediator between God and his people. But really this Moses here in the text is helping us to appreciate the value of the better Moses, as he is referred to in the book of Hebrews, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and men. And so when we wonder about worshipping God in a way that is true and authentic and acceptable to God, we must take note of these four elements, obedience and sacrifice and authority and a mediator. And so one of the lenses through which this important chapter must be evaluated and approached is then this fourfold indication of what God demands of man and what man so desperately needs, namely obedience, sacrifice, authority, and the work of a mediator. But as we burrow down deeper into this text passage, let these four issues be ever-present in the back of our minds as we take note of the various players or the various parties in this word picture that has been drawn for us here in Exodus chapter 24. Won't you notice, firstly, when we look at the, the various parties, is the people. The people stood at the foot of the mountain. They had been standing there since verse 17 of chapter 19. So in all these chapters, in all these weeks, as we've looked at this revelation in the book of Exodus, we've had the people standing at the foot of the mountain. God didn't want them to come any closer. They needed to stay there. That's one group in the story. But clearly here in chapter 24, there's a second group, and that is the leaders. And they are mentioned, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and we won't take time to discuss Nadab and Abihu's sad ending for their disobedience and their arrogance later on in the book of Exodus. But they are mentioned along with Aaron. The 70 elders are mentioned as well. We also see these young men mentioned, and possibly they are the firstborn who are mentioned back in uh, chapter 13 in the first verse of that chapter. And then the last person who's mentioned by name here in terms of this group of people who are different to the people is the name of her. Aaron and her, you'll remember, hold up Moses' arms. But then we have, thirdly, Moses and Joshua. Moses and his assistant, Joshua. And then the, the other reality in this picture, the other person, is God. The very significant component of all revelation, the one who gives revelation, God. The center of all reality, the creator and sustainer of mankind. Well, as we organize these facts in our mind, let's also note details in the order uh, in which they, we find them here in this 24th chapter. I find it very helpful to, to work through and circle around and circle back again and again and take note at deeper and deeper levels 
trying to arrange the details in my mind. And won't you notice with me in the first part of verse 3, the reference to the words of the law and all the rules. And obviously here we are referring to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words that were given uh, in chapter 20, and the case laws that we looked at in 21, 22, and 23. These are read to the people twice. Then in the second half of verse 3, we see the response of the people. We will obey twice. In response to each of the two readings, they are determined, they are submissive, but of course they don't remain that way. They intend to obey, but of course, being who we are, fallen creatures, children of our ancestor Adam, the first Adam, we have a natural bias away from God. We are naturally rebellious toward God, and as much as we intend to obey, we land up not doing so. But then notice in verse 4, the writing down of the law and the building of the altar on the part of Moses. So Moses reads to the people what he has written. He builds an altar with the 12 pillars. Not quite sure exactly how that looked. This detail is all we have. Then notice in verse 5, the sacrifice of animals and the collection of their blood. These young men are sent. They are of the people of Israel. They offer burnt offerings and they sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses collects the blood. Then in verse 6, notice the sprinkling of half of that blood on the altar. Moses takes half of the blood and puts it in basins and he takes one half and throws it on the altar. So he anoints the altar, he consecrates the altar with blood, the blood of the sacrificed animals. But then won't you notice in verses 7 and 8 that there is a second reading of the law and the people's response. And following their response, Moses sprinkles the blood on the people. Verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said to them, Behold the blood of the covenant. Then in verses 9 to 11, we see reference to the group that went up to God. And this is where things really become amazing. Because these people who go up to God see God. Now, in effect, they only see the feet of God. Because that's the only part of God that is described for us. It seems as if they're down on their face as one would expect in the presence of God. They're absolutely humbled before God. And all they really see is where he is standing. There is this very clear pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Seems like it's glass, but it is amazing. And then we read that they ate and drank with him. Now that simply is 
amazing, stupendous. And there's no contradiction here in case your mind is working overtime as it should be with passages of Scripture that clearly teach that no man can see God and live. The reality is that they didn't see God. Just as Moses only saw the back part of God as God passed by in another encounter, here these people only see the feet of God. Exactly what apprehension they had of God while they ate and drank with him, we don't know. But then won't you notice too in verse 12, the summons that Moses receives from God that he should come up and collect the tablets of stone from God. God has got something to give to Moses. Moses has done some writing, but as we'll see in subsequent chapters, God has done some writing as well on tablets of stone using his own finger. Then notice in verse 14, the delegating of authority to the leaders who remained behind, Aaron and her. They are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Moses is a wonderful leader. He puts representatives in charge in his absence. And then we see Moses and Joshua going up. This is probably the fifth time that Moses has gone up the mountain. It's difficult to keep track and to follow the timeline accurately. But certainly Moses has been up and down the mountain, and here he goes up. Somewhere along the line, he leaves Joshua on his own, and Moses proceeds further. And notice the twofold reference to the glory of the Lord, and the four references to the cloud. God is in the cloud, and it's like fire burning fire, a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. And for six days, Moses is there, not quite with God, some kind of waiting preparation period. But then on the seventh day, he enters the cloud and he goes and he spends 40 days in the cloud with God. And what God revealed there in the cloud to Moses will form the substance of the next six chapters of Exodus and how important these chapters are for us as we get categories, gospel categories, to appreciate the nature of God and His grace. Well, as we ponder these uh, details, fascinating details, as we picture them in our mind's eye, Let's identify the reality of emotional tension in this passage. I mean, imagine the tension, the emotional tension. What was it like for Moses and Joshua and Aaron and Hur and the 70 elders and the young men and the people waiting down at the foot of the mountain? You feel the tension in your own heart as you consider these inspired words. Because there is a tension, is there not, between our very dominant modern-day preference for leisure and relaxedness and casualness on the one hand, and on the other hand, the spiritually attractive and intriguing, even awe-inspiring reality of God and His presence and being in His presence. 
and knowing that in and of ourselves we are unworthy. And this rightly excites a trembling and a silence and an awe, a worshipful awe in the true believer. You simply can't read these words here and be left unaffected by them. This is an incredible revelation, this 24th chapter. Praise be to God for giving it to us and giving us an opportunity to enter in and appreciate all that is being revealed. And so I ask you, don't you find yourself coming away persuaded as you look at these words don't you find yourself coming away persuaded that the God of the Bible is very prescriptive and decisive and specific he's a detail-oriented God and so being solemn towards him rather than casual and relaxed and disrespectful there needs to be a sense in which we pick ourselves up and put our hands over our mouths and realize that we're dealing with God, the God, the eternal God of the Bible. Don't you find yourself coming away persuaded that Moses, this mediator, is playing such an important role, but in reality he's only for us as, as new covenant people, a type of Christ, a picture of Christ, because we know from 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And our appreciation of the role of Moses in this passage is just building up and preparing us for our appreciation of the real mediator, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you find yourself coming away persuaded that what we have here as we read in verse 8, the second part of verse 8, the words, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. God has made a covenant and he sealed it with blood. Doesn't that just set us up for such a wow moment as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel accounts on the night before he died, infusing new meaning into the Passover meal as he took the cup and said, this is my blood of the covenant. Words recorded for us by all three of the synoptic writers and then quoted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, that passage that we always read at the communion table when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Words that are echoed in the book of he in the book of uh, Revelation. Sorry, words that are that are um, echoed in Hebrews thirteen twenty by the words in that benediction, the blood of the eternal covenant. So it's the blood of the covenant, the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the eternal covenant. And then this concept of blood and the confirmation and sealing of a covenant between God and hell-deserving sinners who have faith in Christ comes to its clearest focus in the book of Revelation at chapter 7. Won't you listen and picture this scene? I'm reading from Revelation 7, verses 13 to 17. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. A glorious future awaits the people of God. Friends, a worship service such as this one we are in, and this one described for us here in Exodus 24, is nothing other than a meeting with God and a beholding of His glory. A ceremony involving, in the words of Philip Ryken, a call to worship, the reading of the word, the confession of faith, the sacramental meal, the oversight of the elders, and the role of the appointed leader. And by way of application, as we rush toward a close, by way of application, can I say to you, dear friends, that your prayer on Saturday evening and on Sunday morning as you anticipate worship ought to be this, Lord, let us truly meet with you and behold your glory. Let's appreciate whenever we come to worship God, the presence of ritual and the symbolic and doctrinal use of blood, Christianity is a bloody religion. Blood the blood of the sacrifices, foreshadowing the blood of the Lamb of God. So important. And all of this then must serve three practical purposes as we go into the week ahead. Firstly, dear fellow believer, let me encourage you on, on the strength of what we have read to appreciate Calvary, where Jesus shed his blood as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of many. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In his body there on the tree, Jesus bore our sins. And so this is an opportunity for us afresh to appreciate Calvary and the death of Jesus because it was there that Jesus, with his blood, purchased people for God. Then secondly, on the strength of this passage, let me, del let me encourage you to delight in the mediatorial work of Christ. As you think of Moses there in the cloud on the mountain, representing God to the people and representing the people before God. Delight in the mediatorial work of Christ at the Father's right hand in glory. He intercedes for us even now at his Father's right hand. Here in our text, Moses went up on the mountain in the cloud to be with God for 40 days. Well, our mediator, the better Moses, has gone up to heaven, he has ascended up to heaven, and he has been installed there at his Father's right hand to represent us in glory. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, delight in his mediatorial work for you even now. But then finally, 
as someone who responds not just once but constantly and repeatedly, as someone who responds to God, someone who worships God and submits to God, let me encourage you, lean into the reality of obedience and identity. As someone in covenant relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ, derive comfort and confidence from that identity and that relationship. Remind yourself often that he who has gone up will come down again to fetch those who are waiting for him. Well, this is a glorious passage. I've so enjoyed just entering into it. I trust that you have as well. How appropriate it would have been now to close off with the singing of that well-known hymn, It is well with my soul. But since we cannot sing, I have chosen a more meditative song for us to hum responsibly, responsibly before God as we end our service. O oh, great God of highest heaven. Amen.